Hello, welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, where we celebrate the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. Hi, I'm Elijah. I am Alex. And I'm Greg. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at ketoallmythologies at protonmail.com. Also, please visit our website, ketoallmythologies.com, which has a reading schedule if you'd like to read along with us. Today, we are reading book six of Ovid's Metamorphoses. All right. So in book six, we get a number of very dramatic stories of gods punishing mortals for their pride or their hubris or however we want to describe it. Uh, the first story we get is Minerva tells a story of a human queen who's related to royal stock. Oh, no, before actually before that, we get Minerva's story of her contest with Arachne, where Arachne outspins Minerva's tapestry. Minerva beats Arachne almost to death for beating her in the contest. Arachne then hangs herself on the threads in order to cut the pain off. Minerva rewards and punishes her corpse at the same time by transforming it into a spider and having it weave forever. So a wild story there. And then that transitions to the story of Naomi, who is a uh, royal woman. She's very related to gods um, and she, she rejects the new cult of Latona. Latona is Apollo and Diana's mother. And Niobe rejects the cult of Latona because she has 14 children, seven uh, boys and seven girls. And so she claims she is of a greater stock than the, the new goddess. Latona hears of this brag and orders Apollo and uh, Diana to murder the 14 children. Uh, Apollo first murders the seven boys. Niobe's husband then kills himself at the funeral. Um, and then at the funeral, Naomi is mourning all of this loss. And again, she says, but I still have more children than you. And so Latona makes good on the second threat and has Diana murder the seven girls until Latona is left, or sorry, Naomi is left husbandless and childless. Oh uh, no, it transitions then into um, this kind of story of ter uh, Terius, Procne, and Philomet. Uh, um, so Tereus is a very proud king. He gets married to Procne of Athens, um, and he falls in love with Philomela, uh, Procne's sister. Uh, he decides to violently rape her after he organizes Philomela's basically trip aboard uh, a ship. He traps her in a house, cuts out her tongue, and does everything within his power to prevent her um, for, from getting away short of murdering her. It seems like the only reason he doesn't murder her is because she asks that he murder him. She's in so much pain. Um, so this is an obviously very cruel story. Uh, Philomela concocts this plan where she sews a tapestry like Arachne earlier that tells a story. The story is of what happened to her. Uh, a peasant woman sets her free and organizes a meeting with her sister Procne. They meet and get together and Procne decides that the best plan of action is to chop up her child um, that she's had with Tyrius and, and uh, feed him to, is that right? Uh, yeah, so feed him, feed her child to Sorry, I, I was, sh I, uh, listeners, I was shaking my head because of how outrageous this story is. Oh, but absolutely. Yes, you got it right, Greg. One of the most monstrous things, horrible things I've ever read. I, I can, yeah, even the age just woke. Um, so she chops up her child and feeds it to her husband. Her husband is alarmed and shocked. And then he chases after Procne and Philomela. They are turned into... Um, birds. I think they're cardinals because they have red bellies, but I'm not entirely sure which birds they're turned into. And then um, Tyrius is turned into a hoopoe uh, as he chases after them, I guess, kind of eternally. We get some kind of winding down of this brutal story, and, and we find out that Boreas, the northern wind, uh, who's also tangentially related to the Thracians because uh, they're both from the north, we get this story of Boreas coming and raping another girl, Orithia. And that's the conclusion to this, the very awful conclusion to this chapter. So our opening question was written by Paul. 
Paul's interested in the relationship between violence and justice in book six. The first story ends with violence toward Arachne from Minerva after Arachne dishonors the gods. The second story ends with violence toward Niobe from Latona after Niobe dishonors the gods. The third story ends with violence toward Tereus and Itis after Tereus behaves violently toward Philomela. Sometimes it feels like the violence results in desired results for the perpetrator of the violence. Fear of Latona spreads throughout the land after her violence toward Niobe's family, but the other times it seems to not provide the desired result. Minerva never proves herself the superior artist. What are we to make of the book's attitude toward violence correcting injustices? I wanted to say that I appreciated Greg pointing out the, the, the common thread, <laughs> if I may be allowed to pun, that uh, there's weaving involved in, in Arachne's story and also Philomela's story. And how I sort of interpreted Arachne's weaving and Philomela's weaving is both of them are indictments against rapacious violence that Arachne enumerates crimes of the gods and Philomela details that which Tereus has has done to her so that Procne will be aware that she's suffering and not dead but I did find it as uh, Paul was wondering about I thought it was strange that you have this enumeration of the violence of the gods in Arachne's story and Minerva is just enraged by it and uh, doesn't give any credence to the the suffering that that is there. Alex I'm sorry I missed something could you just re repeat that point again? Arachne's tapestry seems to be an indictment against the, the gods who have committed rapacious acts. And in our uh, contemporary world, if there's evidence of crimes committed, usually the, the criminals are brought to justice. But in this case, we're dealing with gods who don't seem to be subject to the same mechanism of justice. And so Arachne calling out the gods' crimes it just enrages Minerva and Arachne suffers violence and then is transformed into the spider. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in some ways I do want to say there is justice enacted against Athena because this, the, the horrible creature that is a spider becomes the eternal reminder of the gods' unfaithfulness to truth or goodness or excellence. It, it kind of confirms her earlier boast, right? Because she says, I wasn't taught by Athena. And she proves that in the contest. Yeah, as you said, Alex, like all of her tapestries confirm the story of the gods doing violence again and again. And he, even Athena's um, tapestries, they're supposed to be like warnings, right? She has, she has a main theme. And then she has these side themes of various gods punishing mortals for pride. But in each of those moments, it really seems like they also kind of confirm the, the overarching sense that, yeah, the gods are, are really out to punish mortals. The other thing I was thinking about that too is Athena seems so different from the character, well, maybe not so different, from the character in the Iliad. So right in the Iliad, when Achilles draws his sword to cut um, down, he's going to kill Menelaus. And he, he, uh, he draws his sword. Athena is the one who holds him back. And I think that establishes, even though Athena is a very bloodthirsty god in the Iliad, she's, she's a patient goddess. Here, it's almost comical where she picks up the loom and just bashes a human being to death or near death, so much so that in the, in the, in the, you know, the strands of the loom, she finds enough of, you know, cord to hang herself. And it's such a bizarre image of the warrior goddess compared to the earlier mythology. 
I don't like I don't even know what to do about that. Yeah, I think that's right, Greg. And if we think about the tapestry of the metamorph metamorphoses, it feels like Ovid inhabits so many different sensibilities and voices and points of view. And there are these earlier, in the earlier books, it really felt like you were in this enchanted world where the gods were sort of doing things that were devious, but but it was almost playful or it was almost like yeah, it was almost like, not not like satire, but it was almost playful or almost like a fairy tale or something. And then you get to this book, and the stories are like uh, Cormac McCarthy stories, right? In their in their sort of grittiness and violence, and it just feels I don't, I don't have any idea how to locate this new sensibility within the metamorphosis as a whole, and then how to try to understand what he's doing because it feels like such a marked shift towards gritty realism and seeing the gods not just as sort of mischievous but as like closer to wicked yeah i think or, that's or right. cruel cruel is a better word than wicked i think that's right the one thing i would add is i wasn't sure and this is almost a more disturbing thought if some of this wasn't for comedy um where the violence was so over the top that to a roman audience this would have been played for laughs and I think part of the reason I think of that is I think of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, which is based on the Philomela story. Um, and that I, I can tell, you know, it's a much closer culture. Certainly parts of it are played for laughs, even though it's disturbingly over the top violent. So I'm wondering, it's like, you know, there's a, almost like cartoonishness to how violent this is that I felt kind of took aback from the realism. But then at the same time, Elijah, I think you're totally right. So the scene where Tyrius decides he's going to rape Philomela, um, Ovid parrots some language from Sappho. I think it's fragment 41. It's the really famous one where it talks about like fire in the throat and being jealous of um, a person kissing another person and wishing you were in their stead. It was a kind of like very, very dark realism and a perspectivism of the of the rapist, which I think, you know, Ovid pretty consistently inhabits that perspective. I still don't know what to make that. But yeah, it's definitely like an orientation where it was, it was on page 144. He says, an interior watching sees beyond what he sees. She is in his arms. That is not her father who her arms go round, not her father she is kissing. Everything is fuel to his fire. He would like to be her father at that moment. And if he were, he would be as wicked a father as he is a husband. So Pandion says, yes, and Philomela, poor girl, is happy and thanks him. And both his daughters, she thinks of one. They are losers, both his daughters. But how is she to know? So that there's this, he's drawing on like a, a long tradition of very established erotic poetry. He's infusing extreme violence and trepidation into that eroticism. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm crossing too many strands. No, I think, I think that's right. And then if we turn to 146, right, we have an extended, I guess you call it an epic metaphor or an epic simile where uh, he describes the, the rape for the victim, right, for Philomela. So in the middle of page 146, so this is line 530. And he told her what he was going to do and straightaway did it, raped her a virgin all alone and calling for her father, for her sister, but most often for the great gods in vain. She shook and trembled as a frightened lamb, which a gray wolf has mangled and cast aside, poor creature, to a safety it, can't quite, it cannot quite believe. She is like a dove with her own blood all over her feathers, fearing the talons that have pierced and left her. Um, I mean, yeah, it's just a it is just there's no euphemism here it's just very both the emo as the the passion of the rapist as you were saying greg is is highlighted and sort of put in the front and center so is the wickedness of his deed mm -hmm. which again is somewhat unusual for for this poem for it to be front and center like that like you just read that and it's so visceral right right and, and i think that's why the comic like reading this as a farce or a comedy doesn't feel proper at all because it's so psychologically real. But then it, the motivating acts of the characters are so over the top 
So I can't tell if this is like a really alien culture or really, I mean, obviously these things are plausible. It's not like the, the violence is, is unimaginable. I think I, maybe another way to say this is violence to me, as I understand it, usually grounds the events of a story, right? So, you know, in a traditional cycle of war, the violent act, you know, the rape of Helen begins the siege on Troy, right? It's, it's, a definable moment. It's very clear. It sets out the story in a way that we all understand it, how the story is going to be played out and how, what we're interpret, supposed to interpret the events here. Here, the violence, even though it certainly still acts as the motivator and provocateur of the story, the, the violence is so much more central to the arc of the story's plot or the, or the, or the psychology and the, the tone of the story that rather than being this like launch point or grounding event that helps the rest of the story make sense. It, the, you know, the, the rest of the story where they're like chasing after each other or the child is murdered and chopped up and they turn into birds seems fanciful and meaningless in the context of the inciting event, which just feels like a very strange way to talk about stories. Sort of like the, the gravity of the violent rape of Philomela it doesn't quite translate to the later part the 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 denouement of this story is what yeah, you're getting at maybe I would say is the stories usually seem to be focused on their conclusion I mean depending on how you read the Iliad I, I think one pretty clear reading though is you could go in the direction of like Helen it's rape is the motivating feature of the story, right? Like, like Helen is in a position where she can talk about both armies. She understands the situation. Um, the scene where she's forced into bed by Aphrodite is um, disturbing, but not so upsetting as to upend the whole story, right? It's not really about her at the end of the day. Um, but she situates and helps us really understand what's going on. But if you retold the Iliad in this painfully acute psychological ways from both the perspectives of the of the perpetrator and the victim it would be the story would seem to be you know it, it wouldn't be able to gain traction it wouldn't be able to keep going it, it would be so bizarre to then talk about the great deeds of achilles or something like that and it feels like what ovid is doing here by putting i mean so much of the page length is on the on the on you know the inciting event where Tyrius. Um, assaults Philomela. Uh, that pressure, oh man, how do I talk about that? Yeah, that, that pressure upends the storiness of the story and it makes the ending to me feel inconclusive or insignificant. And that feels like he's really harming the epic tradition. It, it just it just flips, you know, the emphasis is taken away from the ending and put on the beginning of the story, which feels unstory-like. So, Greg, if you were to compare this to something like the it's the story of Dido killing herself, which is in book four, I believe, of the Aeneid, you do see some of this psychologizing there. But your point would be that um, the psychologizing is in the service of this sort of culminating moment uh, where she throws herself on the funeral pyre. And here it's like the the psychologizing threatens to overtake the narrative structure or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. Like, you, know, you know, the the need for them to become birds is in some ways, there's been so much pressure on the characters that there's no way to resolve the story other than to transfer, transform the problem away. Like the, like the, the characters can't survive the violence or not, you know, with Niobe, she's so harmed that she's, that the only resolution left to her is that she's turned to stone. Um, and so these, these transformations are just seem like psychological after effects where, yeah, in the case of Dido, it really is about establishing historically the conflict between Carthage and Rome. And I think Dido's actually, you know, Virgil's a great storyteller, so he wouldn't place, you know, turn Dido into a, a piece the thing and there's that you know uh, Augustine quote about weeping for Dido and I think that's more towards the Ovidian type of storytelling right where where the violence becomes a story in itself or or psychologically upsets the 
arc of the story and, and leaves the you know the epic hero kind of unmoored from this like ending or conclusion but in Ovid it's it's there's no room for any kind of resolution or something like that because of how much he focuses on the earlier psychology and suffering well so if we think of the I think that's great if we think of the story of Terius and Philomela as a tragedy right a tragedy so correct me if, if I'm getting this wrong or if there's a better way to say it but a tragedy right tells of the downfall of a, of the main character due to a tragic flaw or fate right and there's a the reason there's catharsis at the end is that the downfall is meaningfully connected to the main action of the story and it somehow culminates and resolves the tension that that begins the story and I think the the philosophical problem with seeing metamorphosis everywhere is that it becomes very difficult to achieve catharsis. The changing into birds at the end, it does not feel like a sort of the tragic justice, right? Or the tragic ending. It's not grounded in the same way because it's in a way, if everything is always going to transform, nothing is meaningful in a lasting way. And I feel like catharsis is achieved through I mean, I think catharsis is closer to what the romantics meant by sublimity, sublimity, right? Um, and it's it's like viewing or, or engaging something that has this eternal weight or this timeless weight, right? The, the Oedipus story is beyond the ephemeral changes of reality, right? It captures some deeper truth. Ovid doesn't posit that sort of deeper truth, right? Things happen and then they change. And it, it just feels a lot to, it feels to me like there's a frustrated catharsis there. Yeah, I, I think it's great. I would not consider this an Aristotelian tragedy. Like I think it's, it's so devoid of, of catharsis or, or, you know, like greater significance that it feels very un-Aristotelian that way. I think part I, of it- By the is, way, I totally, I totally agree. I, I was, uh, yeah, that's what I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, that that it points to a, a very different kind of world, especially. So I think of like Oedipus is like prototypical Aristotelian tragedy, where Oedipus collapses, but in some way it's for the state of Thebes, and and it's always localized within the region, and there's some kind of suffering that the city must endure because of his actions, but he his bones and his ultimate essence still serves the city. Here, it just seems like Athens is degraded by what happens and, and nothing comes of it. I was thinking of like a, a comparison, like a modern equivalent to this. And it, it'd be like someone telling a story about, you know, someone's uh, walking down the street from home and she gets hit by a drunk driver and her legs are mangled and broken. And she sits there lying, suffering, and just spends so much time talking about how much pain she's in. And then a, a god takes pity on her and turns her into a snake or something. So she never has to endure the, the suffering of, of, of having legs again. It's just, yeah, something like that level of perversity and meaninglessness really holds the piece together and, and, and again, makes the ending unimportant. I was also thinking this in terms of a spider's web as opposed to a weaving like a proper tapestry so in a tapestry right the the threads aren't significant it's the whole piece that stands out whereas in a spider the threads are so much more emphasized because there's so few of them and the ultimate goal of a spider web is you know death and predation uh where you know the and and the writings of the of the characters within it right it's a literally animated tapestry if we're creating an equivalence between tapestries and webs like i think Ab is trying to put us towards and and so these stories are much more like spider webs than tapestries because fly arrives in the spider web it's tortured and killed and then what becomes of it well it's just another th thread in the web rather than some kind of ultimate purpose that we can learn something meaningful from or or, or a piece of art even Right. The, the, the suffering is what is noticed most keenly about the victim, not their aesthetic value. So we find that 
the description of Tereus violence against Philomela has the most literary weight in the story and the the metamorphosis at the end where Procne and Philomela are turned into cardinals presumably and Tereus becomes a hoopo it has more of a farcical quality and doesn't give us those of us who think about tragic plays and how when you see an act of violence like this it is more at home in the tragic genre when you see the resolution play out as Ovid writes it it is not particularly satisfying I wanted to think about how the the story shifts where you have this gravity of the violent act and then how we move toward the farcical ending is the mention of Bacchus. We bring Bacchus back in to Ovid's Metamorphoses. And Bacchus seems like a fitting god, first of all, because it's Thrace. We are in Thrace. Bacchus is important to Thrace. But then what Procne and Philomela do to Itis is they cut him into pieces, which in our earlier Bacchus story, the human being who doesn't want to pay homage to Bacchus is torn to pieces by his mother. So that that is an echo. We have it echoed here in book six. So are we thinking that because Ovid has to get away from that deep psychological mode of storytelling, he has to go back to his form because he's telling tales of gods and metamorphoses that's why we we find the ending of the story less interesting in a literary sense than the description of the violent act i mean so i'm thinking about the transformation into different kinds of birds right and so there's this sort of connection right the the cardinals have the red breast or whatever because of the blood but when thinking about the transformations i'm wondering to myself, is this supposed to be a punishment? Is this supposed to be a redemption? Is this supposed to be poetic justice? And it kind of doesn't seem like any of those. It feels like, I wouldn't exactly call it farce, though I think I know why you're saying that, but it feels like it's ill-suited. The resolution is not adequate to the, the gravitas of the setup. But like I was getting at earlier, within the Ovidian metaphysics, right? a universe where it's, con which is a sort of a Lucretian-type universe, a universe that's constantly changing doesn't feel to me especially meaningful. Yeah, it feels like it lends itself to sort of levity and farce rather than catharsis and philosophizing proper. Yeah, I would call it something like psychological endurance. To me, it's, it's not even clear to me that we're supposed to think they achieve that transformation. It's like, it's really unclear that that happened, e even in the narrative of the story. And so what is the bird that remains out of it? Or, or what is the marble? You know, she, like Niobe is, is picked up onto the hill and becomes a, a slab of weeping marble. And, and it really feels to me like this is the way that the story is still on our minds even after we're stopped thinking about it. Mm. So, so there's, there's a way in which we see in the natural world the same kind of disturbing transformations that these stories encounter in us. And there's an equivalence in that that's not rational, that's not psychological, it's not metaphysical, it's not even narratively equivalent but it's a connection that we make as we go about the world, right? We encounter marble, wet marble, and it reminds us of an unlimited kind of suffering of the kind that Niobe undergoes, or we see red-breasted birds and think, you know, or, or, and, and see blood and alarm and, unlimited loss and torture in in their in their breasts so yeah yeah it's, it's like it's not a causal relation not a narrative one but just some kind of like 
metaphor. That's that's interesting, Greg, because it suggests that. So I was earlier saying that these failed as resolutions because it wasn't a grand enough sort of denouement. But what you're saying is that tragedy for it to achieve its cathartic effect. Well, we know that watching tragedies are dangerous, right? We know that they heighten the passions. And so it, it therefore needs to be contained in a certain way for it to be efficacious. And so in some ways, insofar as Ovid is describing a bunch of scenes of violence and darkness, he, they're not contained at all. They're spilled out into the world. Everywhere you look, you would see signs of conflict, right? You look at the bird, you look at the frogs. Everywhere in the material world is sort of through Ovidian storytelling, right, is hypercharged with sort of tragic passions. Yeah, and, and, and I, was, I would say even to go so far as there's a certain kind of natural disgust that is proper towards the world. So it seems like Ovid's saying like, we should feel disgusted naturally when we see spiders. They should be totally revolting creatures because they remind us what kind of monstrous gods made this world that there are spiders in it or what kind of monstrous gods made frogs and red-breasted birds and stones that weep. Or how, or how monstrously Eros can play out in human relations. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And, 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 and that's that kind of disgust that we feel towards the stories and towards the natural world is the disgust that Ovid is drawing together as an equivalence through the transformations less so than he's trying to accomplish like a, I don't know, some kind of um, etiology or something. This is a very cynical Ovid we're talking about here. That's, yeah, my reading of Ovid is, has been, I mean, after this too, just totally brutal. It seems like a person who's, and I've said this before, but now I'm starting to see it that, that Ovid has a kind of disgust towards the, the natural world. You know, I can see the divine, that makes a certain amount of sense to me towards the gods, uh, towards, towards human relations, that makes a certain amount of sense to me, but projecting that onto the natural world in this way, I think the spider really clued me onto it, where I think he really doesn't, doesn't like spiders. And he, he's turning his disgust into art in that way. You know, and I, th I think that's like a culturally inherited thing too. You know, he's not the progenitor of the idea that spiders are bad. Yeah, laying that out, so distinctly it's really it's really bleak well and it's a, right it's a very different sensibility than we find in the georgics for example yeah yeah that's a that and that and both of them seem weirdly lucretian mm -hmm. right so in, in the georgics there's a sense of natural world subject to decay and change and, and death but that's that's proper to it whereas here the natural world is this kind of like imprinting or, or mirror of psychological horror that is the human world being subject to violence constantly. Um, but one is much more pessimistic than the other for its Lucretianism or Epicureanism. Right, and there's not, I don't think we've seen a single metamorphosis that didn't involve violence or negative psychological emotions. Yeah, like the closest one I can think of is Narcissus, where it's where it's just so much self-absorption that he transforms into flower. And that's that, you know, that's just absence is the is the only harm where he he, mm. he yearns and can't satisfy. It. But even that is sufficient to lead to bodily decay or or transformation. And then that even makes, you know, Narcissus is disgusting, right? Beautiful flowers. What are they? Ah. It's a reminder of our eternal inability to fulfill desire. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, and our self-absorption and our... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such an alienating thing, right? What's an echo? An echo is, is, is uh, someone who's, who's in love with someone that hopelessly and without purpose. Mm -hmm. I mean, this level of etiology just turns everything into an offense against the gods too, right? That's uh, really the, the natural world is, is entirely created out of human beings who pissed off the gods in whatever mode. Oh, that that was from someone who, you know, dared to defy Zeus or Athena. 
Look, we're stuck with this miserable insect or creature for the rest of existence. I I certainly felt that with the account of the the origin of the frogs. That uh, oh, what did we have? Latona came to the water, kneeling to drink. This is on one forty. But they were churlish people. They tried to keep her off. She pleaded with them. Why am I kept from the water? The use of water is free to all, or should be. Nature never made the sun private, nor the air, nor water, whose gentle blessing I have come for, asking nothing that all men do not own. I beg you, let me have a little water as a favor, not as a privilege. I did not come here to wash my weary limbs and my tired body only to quench my thirst. I can hardly speak. My mouth is dry, my throat is dry and burning. To me, one drink of water would be nectar. It would be life. It is life you would be giving with just one drink. Do little children move you? Look, mine reach out their hands in supplication. It was chance, I guess, that at that point the babies reached out their little arms. But neither children nor the mother's gentle words had any power. They told her, go away. And threats and insults were not enough. They made the water muddy, jumping and splashing, exulting in their meanness until the goddess forgot thirst for anger. No daughter of Coeus could keep on being humble to louts like these. No goddess failed to speak in her full voice. She cursed them, live forever in that foul puddle. And it came out that way. They live in the water and they love it dearly. Now diving under, now coming up to the surface to stick their ugly heads out and now swimming, now squatting on the bank or leaping into the cool water again and all the time keeping their everlasting quarrels going as shameless as they ever were and cursing or trying to curse even when underwater. They have hoarse voices and their necks are swollen. Their jaws spread wide their faces bulge, their necks seem to have gone entirely, their backs are green, their bellies, the biggest portion of their bodies are bloated, white, and in the muddy water, the new frogs keep on leaping. I think it's really excellent poetry, and it, it captures what we've been saying, that you have these people, people who will be horrible to other people and just lack all pity, for a, a thirsty person and muddy the waters. So there you have it. You will be punished and turned into these vulgar, vulgar frogs. It's interesting too, because the narrator doesn't hold back from judgments on either the frogs, the frog people or from Arachne. So, you know, in an ordinarily sympathetic telling you'd expect the narrator to either withhold judgment entirely or to, you know, talk at least a little bit about how perverse it is. But here, as in the story of Arachne, the narrator is clearly sympathetic to the gods, which is not at all to say that Ovid's sympathetic to the gods, but just that the judgment on the part of the narrator somehow is intertwined with the bodily transformation. And it's the, the narrator who fills in the kind of logical gaps of the God's curses, right? So the, the Lido just says like, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and the, you know, the water be upon you, right? In the same way, it's like a simple curse, but the narrator's like, yeah, and then their, their necks grew bulbous to match how, you know, they're, they're croaking and all that stuff. I'm not, I'm going to take us to a slightly different place. I think it connects. I'm not sure how yet, but I, I wanted to talk about it. And this is Procne's speech to herself on page 150, line 620, 632, maybe. In some ways, it seems like a lot of this book is about the problem of theodicy, right? Justifying the ways of gods, gods to men. And Ovid doesn't seem particularly interested in justifying the gods but he seems interested in that, that problem. So Procne is looking to her son who she's about to cut up and serve as a meal and looking at her sister whose tongue has been cut out. She looks from one to the other and says, um, and why should one make pretty speeches, the other be dumb and ravish tongue unable to tell of ravish 
since he calls me mother, why does she not say sister? Whose wife are you, daughter of Pandion? Will you disgrace him, your husband, Tereus? But devotion to him is a worse crime. Our translator gives us note that devotion is the word pietas. And this seems to me like an interesting... I'm trying to think if Virgil invokes a standard at all. But the idea that pietas to something that is morally compromised is a worse crime than disgracing that thing. That's really interesting to me. <laughs> and it seems like like that's what Ovid is wrestling with vis-a-vis -vis the gods in some way. That in some ways he's being more pious by refusing to be pious to something that is corrupt. <laughs> and in some ways, I'm, I'm, I'm so right, I'm borrowing her speech about her husband and, and sort of putting that in the mouth of Ovid in a way. But I'm wondering to what degree Ovid would say that the piety of Virgil is a worse crime than the farce of Ovid because the farce of Ovid doesn't obscure the degeneracy of the gods. I, I don't know if you can connect that to the frog thing or if that even makes any sense, but. No, it's interesting. So you're saying uh, Virgil, Virgil's portrayal of the gods, he's committed to the gods being just and worth our devotion right and ovid is presenting us with tales of the gods doing devious things or brutal acts yeah well so i don't even know that virgil would insist that the gods are just but i just think he would say pietas pietas devotion is a good thing to your people I guess to your gods and then what's really fascinating to me about this phrase is the idea that there's a certain sort of pietas or devotion that is a crime. And that's a, and that's a devotion to somebody or something that is decadent, corrupt, compromised, like her husband is, right? Like Terius is. Devotion to him would be a worse crime than disgracing him. Like that, that I think is a... I think that is a principle that makes a lot of sense in the, the Christian and post-Christian world. Mm -hmm. Seems to me somewhat remarkable in the mouth of a Roman. I totally agree. Right. That does it make sense? Is that yeah, absolutely. Point? Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. So in in the Roman culture, disgracing the husband, right? Because they they have copulated. So for her to disgrace the husband that that's a a crime against their customs their like customary practices but the the pietas to tereus who's he's not in our modern sense we wouldn't count tereus as like a proper husband he's a rapist and so pietas but, to but it's pro procne is that's yeah. is saying this so he is a proper husband to procne true and then he rapes her I, sister. I thought she was uh but she's she's like talking, she's sort of addressing Philomela. Whose wife are you, daughter of Pandion? If that's this is coming out of the mouth of Procne, why does well, she they're not both, say sister? They're, yeah, they're, they're both they're daughters both daughters of Pandion. Of Pandion. Yeah, I guess I kind of take it that she's talking to herself. But either either way, yeah, though, either I mean, I, either way, I think the right, substance right. of my point stands. Whoever you take that to be addressed to. Mm -hmm. My point, my point is the questioning of, of piety here is interesting. And it seems to be, Ovid seems to be much more critical of Roman piety than Virgil is. And in some ways, I wonder if that's what his whole project is about, is sending a wrecking, wrecking ball. In some ways, I'm thinking of this almost doing something like the City of God is doing, right? Augustine in the first 10 books of City of God. Well, so Rome falls, right? And then they're blaming the Christians and he goes, you say your gods protect you. Look at all these things that have happened, right? He's deconstructing Roman religion, essentially. And it kind of seems like Ovid is doing something similar. That's, I think, my my point. Yeah, I think you're right, Elijah, even to the extent. So Tyrius calls on the Furies after he eats his child. And to some extent, it seems like he calls on them successfully where he summons up the furies from their feasts. And, it, you know, 
the, the way I understand the Furies is they're always the guardians of the old. So, right, they, whatever has precedence, they protect. So in this case, he's calling on the Furies because you know, essentially Pietas is their, is their realm of defense. So he calls on the Furies successfully because uh, Procne has violated a Pietas. It doesn't matter that he himself has violated a Pietas to his wife or to his father-in-law. That's irrelevant in the stance that he can call on the Furies regardless because a crime has been done unto him, um, even though Procne, at least in a very modern sense, is certainly right to say it's, it's a monstrosity to, to honor him. So he says, you know, my wife has dishonored me. How? Well, she's killed my son, but more metaphorically, right? She's taken me of my paternal rights. That's recognized by the pantheon as a proper call, which to me does, it's an extreme absurdity of religion. It's almost like the Socratic problem where the guy, I can't remember if he, in the, in the, um, that really short dialogue where, where his father beats a slave or something, and is it right for him to intervene and stop his father and protect the slave? Or is it right to his father to allow his father to behave whatever way he wants? Right, so in some way, Ovid doesn't need to denounce the gods. He just needs to shine a light on their activity and you see how absurd it is. I mean, because even the first story with Arachne, right? Her being punished for weaving the best thing I mean, there's something there's something petty and absurd about Athena's reaction. Yeah, I think it's really remarkable too that she's already dead when she's punished. That seems very weird to me, partly because that's corpse desecra- desecration. There's something very different mm-hmm. about transforming someone alive than after they're dead. Um, and I can see like sending the the soul to Hades or something, but it, it's it's so notable. I don't remember anywhere else where someone's transformed after they're dead um, by a god as a mode of punishment. There, I, maybe there's another one. I don't know now that I think about it. But the transformation is a mode of pity, right? But it's also disgust, right? I think it's, it's a mixed one. It's, so unlike the birds one, right? It's a proper release. But then she says, here, let's read it. Right. The important thing you're pointing out that uh, Arachne hangs herself and is for the most part dead and here minerva rather resurrects arachne by transforming her into a living spider yeah so at last she was moved to pity undeniable that minerva is acting out of some pity this is on 133 right uh, and raised her saying live on wicked girl live on but hang forever and just to keep you thoughtful for the future this punishment shall be enforced for always on all your generations so it's, it's this uniquely mangled version of pity where it's just as much torture as it is forgiveness. Or mitigation at the very least, right? Yeah. Insofar like, as being a living spider is better than being a dead woman. Mm-hmm. So, so contrast this with Apollo. Uh, there's, it was one of the earlier stories, Catalonia or something. I don't remember. He, he, he has this lover. She has a, an affair with another you know, mortal, he kills both of them. And after he kills the mortal, he regrets it and turns her into a constellation. That's, you know, that's redemptive pity. And that's well-established like earlier on with the stories, the kind of thing the gods do, you know, Apollo seems to consistently do that, right? He causes um, Daphne to turn into the laurel tree. And then he says, oh, that was a mistake. I guess I'll, I'll honor this tree now by making it my, my, you know, my sacred tree, something like that. Um, so it seems like he's definitely still an absolute violent god, but one who's characterized by redemptive pity. Whereas Minerva here, I don't know what to characterize her mode of pity as, and it, it makes the gods just look worse, right? Because they're the and with Apollo, the divinity, divine powers. I don't want to say it's used for good, but it's used for redemption, right? So God in his Apollo in his capacity as a god is not why he wants to harm the other people, um, but it is in his capacity as a god that he redeems people. It's, that's less clear in the the uh, Latona story, though. But it's it's strange. The redemption consists of 
right? So if you become a constellation, right, you've essentially become immortal. But what has become immortal has actually is actually the story of how the gods wronged you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, which, you know, if you had to ask, would you rather be, would you rather have your life cut short so you can become a constellation or would you rather live out your life? It's not obvious that becoming constellation is becoming a constellation is is good for the victim herself but there is some sort of there's some sort of sense of like poetic justice or narrative justice in some way mm -hmm. i don't know anything else to say uh there was one anecdote when we were talking about a, a person who was dead and then transformed on 142 it talks about the brother of Niobe, Pelops, whose father cut him to pieces and the gods put him together again, but they couldn't find part of his shoulder, so he has an ivory patch on his left shoulder. So essentially, he was dead and then put back together. Hmm. I thought it was a strange, strange little story thrown in there. Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of that. Ovid gives us many strange things, too to uh pour over this book was particularly hard to track all the nested narratives i thought mm -hmm. there was a couple stanzas that i reread maybe two to three times like what just happened how did we get from a to b but that's the other thing that makes the the other thing that makes the epic we've talked about this before so i won't belabor the point but the other thing that makes the epic feel trivial is like the sort of tenuous the sort of gossipy tenuous connections between each story there's no there's no causality at any significant sense of the word and then some other people started talking and this is the stories they told <laughs> like okay dude <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that was another spider web thing where, where it just felt like the connections were much more tenuous than the tapestry as a whole you know, the, the, we're really losing the whole for its parts in these passages. Thank you for joining us in our quixotic quest for the key to all mythologies. Um, next week, we'll be reading Ovid, Book 7, translated by uh, Rolf Humphreys. Good night. Good night.